Hey everyone, it's Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge Podcast. First of all, I supported President Trump. I think his policies were consistent with the people that I represent. There's a lot more money in urban areas than there is in rural areas. And that money gives people a lot more freedom to do liberal things. Things are changing. But that concept of you're not the boss of me is still pretty strong out here. And when they see people with different standards, different values, different monetary backgrounds, they tend to think, hey, there's a bunch of elitists trying to, to jack us around. And guess what? They're right. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode. We're really excited today to have our first federally elected official on the podcast. We're bringing you Congressman Cliff Bentz. And uh, the congressman was able to join us for 30 minutes, and we're really excited to go over some of the, the topics that he was able to cover. But Congressman Bentz was born in Salem, Oregon, and he was raised in eastern Oregon. And I believe that his parents, he said, owned a ranch out there, uh, and that he would work on the ranch even when he was young. By practice, he's a lawyer, and he received his bachelor's degree from Eastern Oregon University and his JD from Lewis and Clark College. He's known as a deal maker, both in the U.S. Congress and then also in the Oregon legislature, where he served both in the House as well as the Senate. And Ben, what did you think of the episode? Well, first, I might quibble a little bit about your introduction about whether or not he's considered a deal maker in Congress. And that's part of what I was interested in talking about. In the Oregon legislature, for sure, he was at the center of a bunch of the biggest compromises, including a multi-billion dollar transportation package that we mentioned in the episode. But in Congress, I don't think that he's demonstrated deal-making. And that's part of what I wonder is like, how possible is deal-making for someone like Cliff Benz? Like, obviously, there's high-profile talks between Joe Biden and Mitt Romney or Joe Biden and, um, you know, like you know, high profile Republican senators, but I don't know much about the behind the scenes sort of like newer congressmen and newer congresswomen sort of negotiating bills together. I think Representative Bentz is an interesting figure for a few reasons. One, we talk about this on the episode. He voted in favor of the commission to study the insurrection that happened on January 6th, but he voted against certification of Pennsylvania's electoral college votes, and he voted against the removal of Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees. So he has a sort of mixed bag record for folks on the far right and folks on the left in terms of how he's performing. And my sense is that he's really trying to navigate a challenging political tightrope in his district and in contemporary Republican politics. How do you think he's doing in that balance, Alex? Yeah, well, there's not even just things that are happening in Washington, but I thought one of the most interesting topics to talk about, and of course, that he basically said, and he came out against, there wasn't even really any wiggle room there. He just flat out said, this isn't going to happen, is with parts of Eastern Oregon joining the state of Idaho, which is probably the most text message that I've gotten from friends in D.C. of what the heck is going on in Oregon and why is Oregon trying to join Idaho, which, of course, all of Oregon is not trying to join Idaho, just certain counties are as you laid out in the episode, Ben, but uh, he just, I mean, clearly that's a pretty popular position, I would say in, uh, I mean, a number of counties within his district. And he just basically came out and flat out said, yes, we, you know, this might be great in terms of values. People from my district don't necessarily align with those in Portland, but this will never actually happen. So I imagine that that actually is not an easy position for him to take because it's clearly pretty popular within his own district. So yeah, I mean, he's got a lot to be able to navigate both in DC and then as well as in his home district, just kind of as especially as the, the party is changing and the GOP is continuing to evolve. 
Yeah, one one piece of the podcast I wanted to highlight for folks to look out for when we're talking about the commission, one of my follow-up questions was about leadership and like, does he have pressure being applied to him by House Republican leadership? And how does that compare to the dynamic in the Oregon State Legislature? I thought that was really interesting. He talked about a meeting he had with Republican leader Kevin McCarthy that I thought was interesting and not exactly what I expected. So look out for that as you're listening to the episode. Any other highlights, Alex, or should we plug the ratings? You got to plug the ratings, Ben. All right. We need you, our listeners, in celebration of our first federal elected officials on the podcast. We really would appreciate a five-star rating and not just a five-star rating. If you can leave a review, why you like the podcast, why you listen, it's super helpful, helps other people discover the show, makes us look good on the um, on the apps as people are searching for podcasts. Um, so do us a solid. Give us a five-star rating and maybe share with a friend or two. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. Uh, today, we're really excited to bring you Congressman Cliff Bentz, who I believe is joining us from Washington, D.C. And Congressman, how are you doing today? Actually, I'm joining you from Ontario, Oregon. I would not want the nation to see their <laughs> capital looking like the backdrop here, which is my office here in Oregon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. But anyway, glad to be joining you guys today. Sorry, I was just going to say lucky you to be joining from uh, Oregon and not from D.C. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah, no, and there's a, a lot of books in the background and, and various tokens. So clearly a lot of things are getting worked on, which is good. So, Congressman, we wanted to ask you, you've been elected now as a member of Congress since like six months now, maybe coming up on seven months. Uh, how does it feel to be in D.C. compared to being a state legislature in Oregon? What are some of the differences you're experiencing? How is it to just be a member of Congress? Well, I spent 12 years as a legislator in Salem, 10 in the House and two in the Senate. And I'll just share with you that I'm very happy to be in Washington, D.C. And I you know, hate to be so harsh about politics in Salem, but 12 years and never one day in the majority. So we are within just a few votes, uh, four or five votes in, in, the, in the United States Congress of being in power. And uh, I'm hopeful that in uh, 18 months or so, that's where I'll be, but who knows? But uh, as far as my feelings about it, I'm very, very happy to be there. I'm, I see a great opportunity for those of us who want to work on policy as opposed to perhaps shrillness. And uh, if you're going to um, get things done, you can. It's a much heavier lift in Washington than was the case in, even when I was in the minority in Salem, I got a lot done, but it's very, very challenging at least from my initial observation, to get much done when you're a freshman. And I've been very fortunate. I, I'm, I was made ranking member on the Water, Oceans, and Wildlife Subcommittee of Natural Resources, and that's given me some opportunity to try to help on this horrible drought we have going. And I've had a lot of opportunity to work on the Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust, and that's been extraordinarily interesting. It's not often you, you leave Salem talking about school boards and, and, and the like, and then end up the next day in Washington, D.C. talking about breaking up Google. I mean, that's that's a bit of a jump. And uh, that's exactly, exactly what's going on. And uh, I'm very, very happy to be involved in those conversations and happy to have the opportunity to represent the wonderful people of uh, Oregon District 2. I want to I want to pick up on what you mentioned in in your answer there. I actually was a legislative assistant in the legislature during part of your tenure when you were in the house actually and you had a reputation at least amongst the democratic side of being, you know, a skilled negotiator, someone who you could put in the room to make a deal happen. Definitely a conservative, but someone who could, you know, help 
produce an outcome that would be good for everybody. And the, the number one highlight that comes to mind is the big transportation package from 2017, $5.3 billion, great for rural Oregon, great for urban Oregon, generally uh, heralded as a you know really successful achievement of that session. And it strikes me that we are in the midst of several transportation package proposals, infrastructure package proposals, I should say, at the national level that don't seem to have really any hope of bipartisanship, at least from anything that we can see in the media are you hopeful that bipartisanship is possible on a massive infrastructure project similar to what you were able to create in Oregon, or is the political dynamic making it impossible? Well, it's, it's still really premature for me to be able to answer that in any deep way. And my initial months there suggest that there's hope in many areas to do things in a bipartisan way. And I've seen that in the Judiciary Committee in particular, and a little bit so far, just a little bit in the Natural Resource Committee, there are certain things that everybody agrees on. In those, you're going to see them happen. There are other hot button spaces where it's extraordinarily difficult to move forward and politics takes over and nothing happens, or at least nothing happens that's bipartisan. So when it comes to transportation, the reason we were able to move actually a, a number of different bills through in that space when I was there is that my district, my old Senate district and my, my old house district understood clearly the value of a road system that works. I mean, the, the district is huge. I mean, and, and my house district here in the Congress is twice as big, 69,000 square miles. I'm bigger than any state east of the Mississippi. I mean, go on for a week. The, it's just a huge space. And if you don't have roads, you, that's not good. So the people in my district always understood the value of paying what they paid because they knew that other parts of the state would join in. And that's the only way we'd have roads. And that concept of, hey, we, we got to work together because it won't work apart. I haven't seen that with uh, the same clarity yet in, in DC. But you know, there's 435 congressmen and women. And um, so far, I've really met and talked with, I'm going to guess, 60, 70. And well, I'll tell you, it takes you a while to understand who and what and where. And But it's, um, I, I want to emphasize, I'm, I very much enjoy this opportunity, and I'm going to make the most of it. And by that, I mean, trying to advance the interests of the people I represent. Yeah. I appreciate it. It'll be interesting to see um, how the infrastructure conversations unfold. Uh, another vote I wanted to ask you about, you know, <laughs> your first six months, there have been a lot of hot button issues that you've had to take a vote on that I know have been, uh, I can only imagine have been challenging to, to come down on. One I wanted to ask you about was the, uh, the commission set to investigate the, what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. You were one of 35 Republicans to vote for that. It was a courageous vote. It was something that I imagine you were aware there might be some constituents in your, in your district who wouldn't look favorably on that vote. And yet you made it anyway. So I'm curious, what was your thinking there? What was ultimately the deciding factor for why you decided to vote for it? Right. Well, well first of all, thank you for the question. And thank you for acknowledging the difficulty of deciding these issues. It, it is really hard. And it's a constant push-pull between, and by the way, as it should be, between what you think your constituents, the ones that sent you here want, what they understand, what's their level of knowledge on these issues. And you just take into account so many things. And these votes, they don't just happen. We sit down, my staff and I, we talk and we, we work it through every direction we possibly can and uh, do the same thing in our, that same thing happened in, by the way, in our 
Republican caucus, although they don't call it a caucus, it's a conference. But the, to go back to the rationale underlying my decision to vote for the commission was based upon a number of different factors. First, all of we Republicans had already voted for the commission twice. And we had done so because uh, when the impeachment was proposed for President Trump, January 12th, January 13th, I've kind of forgotten, maybe those days are when it was going through, we Republicans suggested as an alternative a commission, and we all voted for it. And I think we voted for it again the next day. That's my general recollection. So not that you know circumstances don't change, they do. But the reason I had voted for the commission early on was because we needed the facts to, to understand what then to do. And so without the facts, kind of blowing smoke. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I've tried a lot of cases. I, I know the difference between facts and, and uh, no facts. And so, the, so I take the position of saying, hey, we need to find this out. And I, I didn't think that the proper thing to do was to back away from that initial position. And, and I'd said repeatedly in different interviews, the proper thing to do is get the facts. Now the question becomes, is the commission the proper tool to do it? Or could you use some other way? And um, there may or may not be other groups looking into those events. I really don't know. I didn't find any groups in the House looking. I've heard that there are several groups in the Senate. Uh, I would simply say that those groups are in all likelihood extraordinarily partisan. And what had happened is our team had sent in some people to negotiate a bill that was balanced, and they came back with a balanced bill very similar to the one we'd all already voted for by all every one of every one of us Republicans. And so to me, the question was, when it comes to getting the facts, do we need a commission to do it? The answer is yes, if that's the only way to get to bipartisanship. And then the second thing would be, from a political standpoint, do you want to face the facts or would you rather not? And it's been my approach in my career to try to always face the facts. And if you're a trial lawyer, you don't pretend that certain things don't happen because in trial, it's going to come out and you better figure out how you're going to address it. And I think there's some things that, I mean, there's some things on both sides that I'm sure people would rather hadn't happened, but now we're going to get a very partisan look. That would be my guess. And I don't think that advances anybody's interest. I appreciate that. One thing that, that, that your response made me curious about was pressure from your caucus leadership or your conference leadership, I, I should say. My impression in Oregon, at least historically, has been that for the most part, there was freedom for caucus members to sort of make votes as they would like without too much pressure from the top with some maybe some exceptions throughout the session. I think that might actually be even changing in Oregon. But have you felt pressure from leadership in a way that was different from the way that you felt it in Oregon since you've been in DC? Well, first of all, I would say in Oregon, on the Republican side, you were always your own person. There were very, very, very few situations where leadership came in and said, you shall do this. And part of the reason was the normal leverage that a leader uses is your, where, your, what committees you're on and, and what you're going to get to do and whether you hold the gavel. Well, guess what? In the 12 years I was there, we, we not quite true. One year we were tied in the house and I did hold half a gavel. And so, but all the other times there was really nothing to take away from you. And also in Oregon, the minority party does not appoint members to the committees. That's done by the majority party. In Washington, DC, each party appoints their own members of committees. And so indeed leadership has power. If they wanted to remove me from a committee, they could do it. But that's to assume that that kind of power was exercised in this vote, this commission vote, it was not. There was no demand that anybody vote any particular way. 
the way that, that they've managed it thus far, and I, have, I haven't seen such a demand, there's been recommendations or suggestions, uh, we suggest you vote this way, this is what leadership is going to do. They did reach out prior to the vote and ask what I was going to do. I said I hadn't decided yet, I was still listening and trying to understand the, the right thing to do given the circumstance. I told them I was leaning toward a yes for the reasons I've just listed. But anyway, the, the, there was no pressure. Honest to God, there wasn't. The next day I went in and met with Kevin McCarthy. We had a meeting scheduled already. I raised the issue with him immediately and said, hey, back in, in Salem, leadership would have said, hey, well, what are you doing? And he instantly said, hey, it's your own vote. Do as you will. And he said, uh, we're happy with whatever you decided to do. And by the way, why I mention it, there was a negotiated, the bill that came out was negotiated to a point of 50-50 control of, it was, it was half Republicans, half Democrats. And in addition, and this is particularly important to a lawyer, you couldn't issue a subpoena without a majority vote. And so that means the control of the witnesses coming before the commission was in, both parties had to, had to figure it out. And so that is super important uh, to both sides. And so that kind of uh, sharing of power we're not going to see that in whatever happens next. Thanks for letting us under the hood there. I appreciate that insight. Alex? Yeah, that was that was really interesting. Thanks for that, Congressman. Now, I want to transition the conversation topic just a little bit. So, and you hit on this earlier as well, but something that we focus on the show a lot is the urban-rural divide. And how we define that is that urban areas and folks who live in urban areas seems like over the years they've continuously gotten ahead where folks who live in more rural areas seem to be continuously left behind, whether that comes to services, infrastructure, job opportunities, all of the alike. And one of the examples I like to use is from someone I met at Dorchester who lived in, uh, in Eastern Oregon. They told me it might take two or three hours, for example, for a 9-11 service call to be able to reach them in, at their house in their community. That's just kind of an example that I like to use for some of our viewers who live in somewhere like Portland, where I imagine that response time is much quicker. But I kind of just want to ask from your perspective, you've lived in a rural area and in rural Oregon for most of your life. As you were saying, your congressional district, I believe, is even bigger than the whole state of New Jersey, which I think is something Congressman Walton had told me at some point. What do you sort of see as someone who's lived through this and experienced this of the urban-rural divide? How do you define it, and what does it look like through your eyes? Right. Well, <laughs> the... Uh... I've heard the question a lot, and many, and I think my answers have changed over time. But the, initially, I would have told you, and you kind of hit upon it, that there's a lot more money in urban areas than there is in rural areas, and that money gives people a lot more freedom to do what I'll call liberal things. And uh, when you're living a marginal existence, you tend to be pretty careful in that, in whatever it is you're going to do with what modest amount of discretionary income you might have. And there's there's many, many people who say, well, if you don't like being broke, they'll move to the city. Well, that's uh, doesn't, easier said than done. How's that? Many, many people in the rural areas have been in those spaces for generations and they really don't want to leave. And so they view the laws that issue from Salem, driven in large part by people from Portland as being inappropriate in many respects. But one of the most important ones is it, they don't understand the marginal existence of people out in the rural areas. They don't get it. They don't understand just how tight money is. They don't get it. And they also don't understand risk. Now, many, many people in the urban areas have good, solid jobs. And uh, until this COVID thing came along, those jobs were pretty much not at risk. They just weren't. But I'll tell you, when you're out raising cattle or raising 
potatoes or raising something and you're dependent upon the weather. You know all about risk and what it takes to ultimately finally get some money. I grew up on a ranch and uh, when I was about 10, my granddad sold the ranch we were on, which was paid for, and we moved with my dad and mom and my older sister and five younger brothers to another series of five smaller places put together as one larger ranch. And we went to work because we had debt and we had a lot of it. And so, you know, often blame dad and mom for having seven kids to help work off the debt. And you know what? I did. And so until I was 22, some, from the time I was basically eight or nine years old, it was work six days a week, really hard. And I am not joking. And so we out here, I mean, things have changed a bit. Things are starting to go to mechanization. Ranches and farms are a lot bigger. The, a lot of the really, really hard work that kids used to do is now done either by machines or by immigrant labor. And so things are changing. But that concept of you're not the boss of me is still pretty strong out here. And when they see people with different standards, different values, different monetary backgrounds, different education, different all that, uh, they, ten they tend to think, hey, there's a bunch of elitists trying to, to jack us around. And guess what? They're right. And so the challenge is, how do you go to people in those positions of power and say, don't come to Burns and tell people what they can and can't do? It's, it's, we're not coming into downtown Portland. We'd like to tell you what to do. Please clean it up. Please, it was such a, <laughs> it was such a beautiful town, and now it's not. Because for goodness sakes, what a wreck. We'd like to tell you what to do, but guess what? We can't. But that doesn't prevent you from coming to Klamath Falls or to Baker City or to Le Grand or, or to you name it. And suddenly saying, this is how you're going to live. And people go, no, <laughs> no, we're not, no, no. That answer is a perfect segue to the next question, which I'm sure you've thought about and spoken a lot about, which is this greater Idaho issue. And um, it strikes me, you know, when I was reading your biography and some background info on you, you're like a true blue Oregonian. You know, your family's been here for generations. You've been on all the boards and commissions, um, including the Oregon Historical Society, which I thought was cool. And meanwhile, you've got, I think, five counties, all of whom I believe are in your congressional district, where somewhere in the mid-50s to the mid-70s said, we're giving up on Oregon. We want to go to greater Idaho. We want to become greater Idaho. I think a couple counties have actually voted something similar down. So it's not a unanimous view, I don't think. But, you know, aside from your views on the question at hand, which is a complex one that involved legislator, legislatures and Congress, et cetera, what would you say to the voters in, in your community who are opting for this greater Idaho move, maybe not the organizers behind it, but the folks who see it on their ballot and find it as an appealing answer to whatever the ills that they're facing are, they think a better option might be to go to Idaho. What would you say to folks who are in those positions? Well, I would say that in, there's a lot of different levels to respond to that question. The first one is, I don't think uh, the people who elected me to Congress elected me to work on things that aren't going to ever happen. And uh, I think the odds of that happening are extraordinarily slim. And if, it, if such a thing were to happen, it would be many, many years from now. It's an incredibly complex process. I want to say at another level, I understand completely why they want to leave. I mean, I get it completely. I live right here on the border of Idaho and Oregon. And for years, I have struggled, most of the time unsuccessfully, to try to get Portland to understand that it's not fair to align a community such as mine against Idaho and expect us to compete while you're busy imposing all kinds of things we can't possibly afford upon us. We can't. People just pick up and they leave. And they've been picking up and leaving for years now and moving into Idaho. And so uh, it's, it is very sad. I can just wander through it, whether it's 
employment policies, whether it's the minimum wage or whether it's the environmental issues or whether it's the tax structure or whether it's land use planning. I could go on literally for like 22 different differences. And the only one that works for our, to our advantage on this side of the river is the sales tax. We don't have one, Idaho does. And so th that's why we have a very large retail population. I view or Ontario in this space as Idaho's drive-in window. And that, that's particularly true right now when it comes to marijuana. And so the, the city of Ontario chose to legalize it both recreationally and medically. And now we have literally millions of dollars pouring into the community from Idaho, literally tens of millions. And so is that good? Uh, not necessarily. In fact, I voted against most things uh, marijuana because I think the majority of the people in my district don't want another addictive substance floating around illegally. It's already here otherwise, but but the point of the matter is competing with Idaho is extraordinarily different, difficult, and no wonder people want to move or move the line. I will say one thing. You move the line, you're still in a state. You're still a bunch of people that need to work on school boards and, and work on all the tough issues that make self-government so difficult, but ultimately so rewarding. Thanks, Congressman. Alex? Yeah, thanks for that, Congressman. And yeah, I know we're running slim on time, but I just have a couple more questions for you before we we let you go. But one thing I want to ask you is just kind of a broad question about the future of the GOP in general. And uh, as Ben started off, there's been a lot of things that have happened in the five or six months you've been elected to Congress. The presidential race was extremely close between President Trump and, and President Biden. And I personally think actually President Trump would have pretty easily won if COVID just didn't have existed. And I know that, you know, for example, President Trump is considering running for office again come 2024. And Basically, at least every poll that I've seen, he's, I think, winning by 40 or 50 percent in each of the primaries. So we sort of have the Trumpism wing, which I would say is, is alive and well. Uh, and then we also have some interesting developments, I would say, uh, nationally and then as well in Oregon, right? I mean, Newt Bueller, Dr. Bueller, for example, who was the standard bearer of the Oregon Republican Party for the governorship in 2018, also ran against you for Congress and came up short in the primary is no longer affiliated with the GOP, even though just two years ago, he was the front bearer basically for our party in, in a statewide status. So I'm just kind of curious, Congressman, what do you sort of see as, as the future of the GOP? Obviously, we're in kind of a transitionary period right now, or maybe even where would you like to see the GOP go further? Is that, do we need to be focusing more on issues that are affecting rural and working class voters? Should we try to reclaim some of those voters that we may have lost in the suburbs? I'm just kind of curious of your general thoughts on uh, where you think the party is going and where you would see it, where you would like to see it go? Well, we need an hour and a half, I suppose, uh, <laughs> to probably answer that question. I, I, first of all, I supported President Trump. I think, I think his policies were consistent with the people that I represent and what they wanted. I'll just tell you that his impact on the type of uh, federal interaction that occurs out here it was very positive, very, very positive. I'm talking about the Bureau of Land Management. I'm talking about the Forest Service. I'm talking about all federal agencies. And there was an absolutely more helpful approach in those agencies uh, while he was president. It was amazing. I'm not, I'm not joking. It was different. And it was very, very, very welcome out here. Uh, and I'm on the Forest Service side, that is a really difficult situation, and I think his efforts there to try to help us get back into the woods, and, and, and when I say get in the woods, I don't mean cutting everything down. I mean getting in the woods and protecting our watersheds and doing all the stuff to try to protect against fire. So his policies there, I think, were excellent. I think you're right. I think he is still the 
leader of the Republican Party. I think he's the the person that people are going to have to work with. I hope he comes out with us. I understand he is working with Newt Gingrich now on a policy packet or something. And and yeah, excited uh, to see what comes from that. Me too. And and I would and I, and he's got to he's going to run again. He's got to come out and say, "This is what I stand for." The same kind of question you're asking me now. That's what he should be answering right now. And it can't all be negative on the Democrats, although I will say uh, that the Biden administration is giving him enormous amounts of ammunition to run against. But you got to have something you're running for. And uh, the types of things that that I think we should be focusing upon would be advancing the interests of the people who have been left behind. And, and we've been trying to do that over here with our little poverty to prosperity group where we've gone into, you'll, you'll understand this, you're being on a school board, Ben, but the that you'll see when you go into schools, an uh, incredible lack of enthusiasm starting at about age 13, 14 and, and going on up, particularly for immigrant families, but also a lot of others because they don't have the money. They don't have the money to go on to college and, and this and that. And, and, they, and they don't have the money for a lot of other things. And so the trick is to make sure you understand that whatever you're offering them is going to give them a future, give them hope give them enthusiasm so that they, that they study and help all of us move forward. So I would say that whatever, whatever we do in the Republican space, it's got to be designed to help those younger people be successful. So that's, that's, that is absolutely huge. That's why I'm so happy to see you on the school board. That's great. Because if ever there is a place you can make a difference, that's one. On the climate, what we should be doing on climate, and so that because there are many, many people very, very fearful of, of what's happening. And I, I, I subscribe to a gazillion different books and magazines, but one of them is this, uh, the, the uh, foreign, foreign Affairs magazine. I think I was holding up the wrong one earlier. Oh, here it is. Uh, yeah, Foreign Affairs magazine. And it has a great article. I just want to read this. The cost of China's stubborn coal habit will be severe. The country's own coal users and plants being built abroad as part of the Belt Road Initiative could burn 100 billion metric tons of coal between now and 2060. 100 billion metric tons of coal. What, what are we doing about it? And so what, what are we truly doing about it? And so if we're going to talk about, about affecting those kinds of massive uh, problems, we should be uh, head, addressing them head on, not sneaking around the edges and nibbling. Uh, that, that is what's going on with the Democrats' approach to, to these, these huge issues. Uh, those, and I know we're running close on time, but the, to me, the, the whole concept of giving people opportunity as opposed to handing out money is a key to our future. And, and what, I want, what I see happening now, a lot of good things can be done with money, but a lot of bad things too. And, and one of the bad things that happens with handing out money is people think that you need to keep doing it. And, and uh, all of a sudden, well, we don't need to work. We don't need to focus. We don't need to become better at what we're doing. I, I just want to say I visited China for a couple of weeks when I was in the Oregon legislature. I have never seen people so driven. I have never seen people so driven. And, they, and that's because they are worried about the future and their, their, their part in it. We, we can't take away from people, the thought that somehow everything is going to be taken care of without them having to do anything. You know that. You guys know this. You, you, somehow you got to instill in kids the thought that we're all in this together. We all got to work at it. Strongly agree there. And I also think China policy is a place where, you know, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is trying to find bipartisan alignment. I hope that policy towards China is a place where we can do that. But we'll have to schedule the 90-minute version of this interview to get into that and the future <laughs> yeah. of GOP, and maybe even some school board pros and cons as well. But uh, Congressman, that is our time. I know you've got lots of other meetings today, but we just wanted to say thank you. You're our first federal elected official on the podcast, um, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. So before you leave, where can folks follow you if they want to learn more about the work that you're doing or they want to be in touch with you? What's the best way for them to, to get in touch? 
Well, I, I think that the best thing to do is to, uh, is to go to bens.house.org and there's all kinds of contact info there, bens.house.org. That's the proper place to go. And um, I, I don't, <laughs> we get so many, this is so different than Salem. I mean, you really are, uh, you really have a great opportunity here to talk with people in this space. So I'd love to hear from anybody that's, that listens to your podcast. And I really want to thank you guys for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, we're looking yeah, forward so to doing it again. All right, Congressman, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye.